Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm Melissa Studdard, and this is Teferit Talk, a blog talk radio show for Teferit, a journal of spiritual literature, where our goal is to promote peace in the individual and in the world through writing. We're so happy that you've joined us tonight, and we invite you to also join our online community at www.teferitjournal.com, where you can interact with other members, read their writings, post your own writings, and subscribe to the journal. We'd like to let you know as well that our Blog Talk chat room is currently open if you'd like to chat with other listeners or suggest questions. Our interview tonight is with renowned spiritual writer John E. Welshunz, who in addition to authoring the books One Soul, One Love, One Heart, More Prayers Aren't Answered, and Awakening from Grief, is the co-author with Mark Victor Hansen of the audio tape Healing the Grief, of the loss of a loved one. As well, Welshens is the founder and president of Open Heart Seminars, an organization whose aim is to increase spiritual awareness and education, and he lectures frequently to businesses, churches, hospitals, hospices, synagogues, colleges, and universities throughout the United States. Welshens holds a BA in Religious Studies from the University of South Florida and an MA in History of Religions from Florida State University. Of Welshens' most recent book, One Soul, One Love, One Heart, Edward M. Hallowell says, Absolutely superb, full of blessings for readers who seek deeper, more meaningful relationships and greater forgiveness and healing. This beautiful book is a wonderful antidote to our society's tendency toward emotional isolation and spiritual disconnection. It will help you find your spiritual path and your spiritual heart in every relationship, in every circumstance, in every moment. Hello? Melissa? Oh, fantastic. Oh, that was scary. <laughs> I guess we just got muted for a minute or something. So, uh, um, yeah, you just like, disappeared. Yeah, well, you did a a great thing there by by hanging up and calling back. So, thank you for doing that. Okay. <laughs> it started everything. So, um okay, well, I just, you know, before we dig into your content, I I just wanted to say that you're such a beautiful, beautiful writer. You know, your prose is so clear and elegant and lyrical, and it's just, it's really a gift to have such important messages delivered with such lovely words. So, thank you. Oh, good. <laughs> That's so nice to hear. <laughs> you know, I found myself wondering while I was reading it if you have any training in writing or, you know, what your background is that, that you're able to write like that, or if it's just a, a natural talent that you have. Well, yeah, I never really took any writing uh, classes per se, but I always enjoyed writing. And uh, actually, when I was in graduate school, I became very adept at academic writing, which is uh, basically means you write so that the average person couldn't... <laughs> Hello? Yeah. Are yes, you there? No, you blinked out for just a second. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, there were strange okay. noises, but now we're back. Right. Okay, great. So, okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. So um, I wanted to just begin by saying that many people think of enlightenment as a solitary endeavor, yet in One Soul, One Heart, One Love, you write about spirituality as a path that's most profoundly realized through unity and connection. So can you talk about how you conceptualize these ideals? Well, um, 
It actually comes through, um, the, the book was originally titled The Yoga of Love and Relationship. And, um, you know, I mean, really, yoga is so popular in our culture nowadays, but uh, the physical postures and stretching exercises that are known as asanas, uh, you know, are just a minute part of the whole path of yoga. And um, in the Bhagavad Gita, which is a wonderful Hindu spiritual epic, uh, the, the three major forms of yoga that are are explicated in there are bhakti yoga which is the yoga of love and devotion and karma yoga which is the yoga of action and jnana yoga which is the yoga of the intellect and uh i was really focusing on bhakti yoga which is really the practice of learning to see god or see the divine in everyone and uh it's really quite a profound practice. And uh, it really, you know, we talk about it being a very uh, profound form of yoga because if you want to get really stretched, you know, if you want to be really pushed to see where your resistance is and where you're stuck and where you're stiff and rigid, then try interacting with other human beings. <laughs> or ultimately bhakti yoga is about. It's about love and devotion and uh, and learning how to see the in, in other human beings the same thing that's in you, to see that place of oneness in each other, even and especially challenging in relationships with people who we find difficult. So that's really uh, at the core of the, the book One Soul, One Love, One Heart. Oh, great. Thank you. And and speaking of difficult people, I I know one of the things that you assert is that um, sometimes the most difficult people can actually be our gurus. (laughs) Right, right. Right. Yeah. uh, Well, that really was a concept that my friend Ramdas shared with me um, many years ago. When I was working with my father, my father, for me, was the most difficult relationship in this lifetime. And um, I was taking care of him as he was dying for, like, the last three years of his life. And he wasn't being very nice to me. And uh, I went to visit with Ramdas, and I was telling him my tale of woe about how difficult my father was being. And Ramdas looked at me, and he said, I have a great idea. And I said, what? He said, why don't you see your father as your guru? <laughs> and I thought, oh boy, you know, that uh, was the last thing I wanted to hear. But I looked at Ramdas, I said, my father? And he said, yes, who else could he possibly be? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's sort of going back to the notion that a lot of us started talking about back in the 60s that we're all one. And if we're all one, well, you know, that's either true or it isn't. And that either means everybody or it doesn't. And if it does, then the challenge is how do we experience that with everybody? And so you pick out, you know, like the most difficult person in your life. Well, maybe that's not the one that you want to start with, you know. <laughs> maybe you want to <laughs> right. start with somebody who's just a little bit difficult. But, uh 
yeah, it's it's really very profound work. And what are what are some of the kinds of things that that someone could learn from a particularly difficult guru? And, and you know, feel free to use your your father as an example if that's the easiest way for you to talk about it. Sure. Well, I think that um, you know, basically, and and most self help people will say the same thing. I'm just kind of taking it to a new level, and what that means is that we do not see the world as it is we see it as we are in other words that's a line from the talmud actually um and um we're always seeing the world and that means other people through the filters of our own perception and it's all our own fears and our desires and our attachments and our judgments and our prejudices whatever it is you know so um, the challenge then when we're dealing with other human beings is to find a way to see that very often our perception of them, what's creating the difficulty, is a very simple thing. is that we think they should be different than they are. All right. <laughs> <laughs> And that's really a path to suffering. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, in, in that same conversation with Ramdas, he said to me, uh, he said, you know, your father is just being the way God made him. That's mm-hmm. his problem. <laughs> and if you get upset about it, now you've made it your problem. And yeah. even in that moment, you know, I started to see that, um, you know, it's a very interesting thing um, when your uh, journal is in, in your show and your whole purpose is dedicated to peace in the individual and peace in the world. Right. You know, and that's really understanding that peace starts with us. Well, I have met some people who are peace activists in my life who are some of the most warlike people I've ever met, you know, they're angry and they're 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 going to create peace, damn it, you know. <laughs> and anybody who doesn't agree is an enemy, you see, and it's a problem. That's a problem. It's right. like back in the 60s, you know, and I I think I wrote about this in in One Soul, One Love, One Heart. But uh I remember going to an anti-war rally in Washington D.C. And um, I was watching the the people who were the the peace protesters, the people who were protesting against the war, were throwing rocks and bottles and bricks and stones at the police and the National Guard. And the police and National Guard were standing there very passively until people started throwing things at them. And I thought, you know, how do we create peace that way? How do we stop war that way? That doesn't really work. So... You know, you can take then that whole concept, well, we want to create peace in the world. We've got to start with our own being. You know, as Gandhi said, we must be the change we want to see in the world. So our our habitual tendency is to look outside and say, well, somebody else is causing the war. You know, but go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that kind of tangentially related to this is the story that you told in the book about the the mom who brought her son to um, 
I, I'm trying to remember, was it Gandhi and said, can you tell my son not to eat sugar anymore? Oh, yeah, 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 that's a great story. Yeah, yeah I would love for you to share that. That's such a good example of, of starting with the self. Yeah, well, Gandhi had that kind of integrity that um, he wasn't about to tell somebody to do something that he wasn't prepared to do, you know. So this woman brought her son, and the son was diabetic. He was a little boy, and he was diabetic, and she couldn't get him to stop eating candy and sugar and so on. And she said, Gandhiji, could you tell my boy to please stop eating sugar because he's diabetic and it's not good for him? And Gandhi said, very well. He said, can you come back in one week? And she was a little confused, but she said, okay. And so she left, and she came back with her son a week later, and she said, Gandhiji, I came back to ask you again if you would ask my son to stop eating sugar. And he said yes, and then he started talking to the boy, and he said, you know, you really shouldn't eat sugar because it's very bad for you, and so on and so forth. And then the, the mother said, thank you, but why couldn't you tell him that last week? <laughs> and Gandhi said, because last week I was eating sugar. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about mindfulness and manners, and uh -huh. that's something that I just haven't seen anywhere else. And I wanted to see if you could share your theories about the relationship between the two. Sure. Well, um, you know, it's an interesting thing that my mother was British, so I was raised with manners being very, very important in our house. You know, and it was please and thank you, and and nothing happened unless you said please and thank you. And, uh, you know, you open a door for people and you stop and wait for someone else to go past. And at one point, I even remember my mother taking my sister and me to the grocery store because she wanted to teach us grocery store etiquette, <laughs> which meant when you're in the grocery store, uh, make sure that you keep your cart to the right side of the aisle and, uh, you know, be attentive to the other people who are in the store and in the aisle. If you have to stop and look at something, pull over to the side so that you don't block the aisle and keep paying attention in case someone needs to go around you and things like that, you know. And it was interesting, and I thought, okay, that's very interesting. And then as I got older, I mean, I was really good at it, but when I became a rebellious teenager, I thought, oh, all this manners stuff, it's a bunch of uptight nonsense. We don't need that. But then, you know, I started to see that um, our culture was becoming less and less interested in manners, you know, and I thought, I started to realize that there was a certain, we were losing something because of that, and it seemed to coincide with um, with people becoming less happy. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting? And I didn't really see the connection at first, except that I started to decide that I needed to be really attentive to my own behavior. So that if I was in the grocery store and somebody else was blocking the aisle and completely oblivious to the fact that there was anybody else around, you know, I would just stop and wait until they finally decided to move. And I would do it as a meditation. 
and uh, you know, which the choice is to angrily say, "Could you please get out of my way?" Or then I would think, "Well, why am I in such a hurry? I can just wait." Right. <laughs> you know? And I started to notice that um, I felt happier when I was being really attentive to allowing other people to go first in line, and you know, to uh, stop and wait at a stop sign or an intersection or hold a door for someone, you know, and and not be so concerned about whether or not they said thank you or even acknowledged that I'd done that. I just would just be attentive. Well, that led me to realize that mindfulness, which is what we generally call the practice of meditation that I teach, which is Vipassana, it's really about paying attention. And part of what you pay attention to is the fact that you aren't the only person on earth. You know, (laughs) and, uh, you know, so a lot of what I wanted to explore in One Soul, One Love, One Heart was uh, the notion that we have become so disconnected from one another that it's really causing our suffering in a sense. It's it's because we, we are connected to one another. So if we pretend we aren't, we are in a sense we're obliterating our own true nature you know we're not paying attention to it we're not honoring who we truly are which is beings who are all one <laughs> you know and so we're really by trying to feel more separate from one another all the time it's like we're we're making the suffering worse rather than resolving it so I thought the manners would be a really nice way to, uh, you know, for instance, introduce to children, um, you know, using a tool that was used as a method of social uh, civility in in earlier times, we could now use it as a tool to bring ourselves into a state of meditative awareness and a way to honor our connection with one another just by being, you know, using what we used to call good manners. Well, you know, this is so important, and and I don't see how to teach these things to children addressed in very many books, and it it was just so wonderful and so refreshing because, um, you know, really we do need to start early. (laughs) Yeah. Teaching them how to to everything that they need to be to be meditative and polite and all of these things and just to make that connection between manners and meditation, manners and um, spiritual development is just such a beautiful thing that I had never really thought about before. So so thank you. (laughs) Oh, I'm glad you like that. Well, you know, it sort of ties in with, there's another section of the book about uh, self-esteem and also another the third section about um developing empathy mm-hmm. and you know i realize that in in mystical traditions and spiritual traditions uh there is usually some awareness of the fact that we have two essential selves and that is and sometimes they're written one is written with a small s and the other is written with a big s and so the small s self is what we is is that part of us that changes 
it's our ego, our personality, our mind, our body, all of that sort of falls into the category of small self. And then there's the big S self, which is the part of us that is literally one with everyone and everything. And that's the place where we not only experience love, but we are love, you know, and not only experience peace, but we are peace. And we not only experience joy, but we are joy. And the big S self is essentially love, peace, and joy. And it's always present within us. And that's where, when we're actually happy in life, it's when we're getting a taste of those things. But right. we try to we try to experience them through the small s self, you know. <laughs> so what happens <laughs> is then in our culture, when we we identify problems, so you know, in recent years we've identified a, a lack of self-esteem. Now, you know. We're, what we're doing is we're endeavoring to esteem the wrong self. You know, we're endeavoring to esteem the individual soul, not the not the individual soul, but the individual ego. Right. And um, and to say that's where you find joy in life. And so it's uh, you know the the extension of that in the culture has been that we have overemphasized. Um, the individual self at the expense of the big ass self, the the self that's united with everything. And Could so, you, um, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I just wanted to see if you could give some specific examples of of how people do that. Just, I thought it would be really helpful to listeners who are trying to get a hold of this in their minds. Well, it's basically, you know, one of the things that has become kind of peculiar is that um, that there's a tendency in raising children in today's world to praise them incessantly, and like, and they should never hear the word no, <laughs> you mm. know. Right. <laughs> but I don't think that that's a particularly realistic preparation for the world. You know, and what we're essentially doing when we do that, with all of the best intentions, because we're always trying to give each new generation a better experience of life than we had. <laughs> the problem is that sometimes we're 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 robbing the child of the opportunity to experience life in its totality. You know, which is going to involve hearing the word no sometimes. And it also, you know, I think that that children uh, are are really desperate for having some boundaries set, some limitations, some for their parents to draw certain kinds of uh, limitations, you know, that that like having manners, you know, like the the. You know, the classic example that many people see nowadays is parents often taking their children out to a restaurant and allowing the child to run around and scream and carry on and disturb everybody else who's in the restaurant because the child should never be told they can't do that. (laughs) When in fact, just the other day, I watched a mother whose child was acting up in a restaurant, and she just turned to the child and she said, will you please stop that? Don't you see that there are other people here? 
And when we're with other people, you can't act this way. You know, you can't disturb everybody because people are here to enjoy themselves and have a nice dinner. And I thought, you know, it's been decades since I've heard a parent say that. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So, you know, that if, if it can be done in a way that we're not squashing the child's inherent enthusiasm for life, But we're also saying that while you're being enthusiastic about life, don't lose sight of the fact that there are other people who are present in this world, too, and that the world doesn't revolve around your little ego. It it revolves around you at the soul level. It doesn't revolve around you at the ego level. So um, I don't know if that helps to expand. Yeah, that's wonderful. Oh, that's that's great. Thank you. You know, um, I can't believe we're about to run out of time. Um, if you don't mind, maybe we can go ahead and let it run over by about five minutes to make up. Whatever you like, sure. Okay, Absolutely. great. And for the listeners, um, if you're listening live, it'll be cut off. <laughs> but when you listen to the recording, it will continue. So you can just sort of get back in there and the cursor to where it left off if you want to listen to the last five minutes. Most people listen after the fact anyway, so it won't impact them. But um, I did want to talk about also when prayers aren't answered, there there are so many wonderful things in there. And uh, one of the things is that you discussed the possibility that unanswered prayers are a way of helping us to know God better, which is a, a really amazing concept. I wanted to see if you could explain that a little bit. Well, that's a tricky one, but it also, um, the short form of it, which is going to have to be uh, sort of powerful, but (laughs) the short (laughs) form is that, you know, I think that we in this culture have a tendency to take our cultural values and try to adapt our spiritual teachings to fit our cultural values rather than the other way around. In other words, we're a culture that believes that happiness is found in wealth and material possessions and so on and so forth. So we try to find spiritual teachings that teach us how to get all the wealth and material possessions we want. Now, there are problems with that because, first of all, it doesn't always work. It works in some circumstances, but it doesn't always work. And when those teachings don't work for the people who are trying to use them, all the teaching can say was, well, you're doing it wrong, which makes them feel worse about themselves, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and the the truth of the matter is, Melissa, you know, when I really explore the, the deepest spiritual teachings I've ever explored, they generally all agree about one thing, that happiness comes not from getting what we want, but from getting free of wanting. Mm. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <laughs> and that, you know, that's the thing that a lot of people in our culture don't want to hear, but it's the the deepest yeah. truth I know. You know, as Buddha uh, in his first sermon, which became known as the Four Noble Truths, uh, said the first noble truth was that life involves suffering or difficulty. You know, that there will be disappointment in life. There will be challenges. There will be discomfort. There will be physical pain. You know, there will be emotional trials. That's just part of being a human being. He doesn't say that to suggest that we're going to be miserable forever. He says, basically, if you think it shouldn't be that way, then you will be miserable. But if you honor that as part and parcel 
of being in human form and living on planet Earth, then you can actually be much happier because you're not looking for things to be different than they are. And then they yeah. said the second the second noble truth was the cause of suffering is desire or clinging or attachment. And that the third noble truth is the way to end suffering is to end desire, clinging and attachment. Now it's yeah. obviously not done in the blink of an eye, but it's uh <laughs> that's <laughs> well, really you know, the path to happiness. And I really like the way you articulated it in one soul, one love, one heart. Mm-hmm that it's not necessarily letting go of desire so much as letting go of the attachment to the desire. And that, I've never really quite thought about it that way. That that makes it seem less scary. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, I mean, uh, the, our mind says, if I didn't have desires, would I even be human? You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, I mean, you know, if I'm hungry, I have a desire to eat, of course. Um you know, I don't have to have a $300 meal to be satisfied. In fact, you know, I could have a very simple meal that might be a lot healthier than the $300 meal, you know. So <laughs> yeah. it, it's also a process of uh, sorting out what our needs and what our desires are because our needs are really pretty simple. Yeah. The rest of it is mostly desire, and that's where we get caught in, oh, I'm not getting what I want, you know. Right, right. Well, thank you so much. It's been just a delight talking to you. And um, I just want to find out before we hang up if you could let listeners know about your website and also any events or publications or just anything coming up that you'd like to announce. Oh, sure. Well, thank you for the opportunity. The oh, website great. is onesoulonelove.com. It's O-N-E-S-O-U-L-O-N-E-L-O-V-E.com. And the books, the three books, are all talked about on the website. They're all available through all the traditional booksellers and the online booksellers and so on. Uh, and then uh, there's also my schedule on there. Um, there's a link to the schedule on the website. and. Right. Yeah, and I'll be uh I'll be in uh Neptune, New Jersey at the Unity Church on June third and Unity Church in Albany, New York on June tenth. I'll be in uh San Diego doing a workshop on healing grief at the Jenna Druck Center on June twenty third, I believe it is, and then in Encinitas, California at the Soul of Yoga on June twenty fourth. Morristown, New Jersey, Center for Spiritual Living on July 1st. So that's wow, sort of, those are the main great. things coming up. <laughs> okay, well, you've got a full plate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, but it's thank wonderful. you so much. <laughs> well, thank you, Melissa. It was wonderful talking with you. It was with you, too, and you have a wonderful evening, and I'm looking forward to any other books that you have come out. <laughs> oh, thanks so much. Okay. Take care. Good night. You Namaste. Too. Namaste. Good night. Bye.